You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. Hello and welcome back. New listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And for all the listeners, thank you for your growing support. It is exciting to see how many people across the globe care about patient outcomes. Those that are new with us, start from episode one and don't miss the great content we have thus far. Listeners have reached out with lots of wonderful questions and some of them have been about an established culture in the ICU, and seasoned nurses. They've asked questions like, can you teach an old dog new tricks? And I believe that when it comes to well-intended nurses, you definitely can. Paula joins us now to share with us what it was like for her as a very seasoned nurse to step into an environment that defied decades of experience and practice. Paula, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your career timeline and where it all began? Hi, Callie. My timeline, let's see. I became a nurse in 1991, graduating from a diploma school of nursing, and went to work at a community hospital in the state that I lived in. Did a year of practice on a cardiac step-down unit, telemetry unit, which was required back then before ever going to the intensive care unit. It had to get you a little bit of background in basically med surge type nursing, build you a good base to, to take off on. I was at that facility for mm, eight years before joining the travel world of nursing and traveled for a couple of years uh, to some great teaching facilities across the United States. Ended up back at um, Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio for another eight years in a 42-bed unit that we did cardiac, respiratory, pulmonary, well, burn, trauma, and medical surgical type nursing. So we were quite a multidisciplinary unit. I left um, that facility and came to Utah and have also worked at some uh, teaching facilities, multidisciplinary, surgical ICU, burn trauma, and some standard generalized uh, medical ICU since then. So 29 years later, I'm still in the ball game for now. That is a lot of experience. So you're, you're kind of a hidden treasure in our ICU community. And before coming to the Awake and Walking ICU, after all those years of practicing, what was your perspective and practice with patients who were on mechanical ventilation? What was normal for you? Normal for me and also wide for the, you know, basically generally ICU and somebody that was ventilated is they were receiving sedation, either with uh, morphine, fentanyl, Versed, some paralytics sometime depending on the situation. And the only time that they were, sedation was lightened was with possible anticipation to see um, if they were ready for extubation or removal of their, you know, the breathing tube. And after all your travels and throughout decades of experience, that, that is normal, right? Um, that, yes, that, that, was, that was the normal, that was the norm. You know, you were intubated, you got the sedation package, it went along with it. One comes with the other. 
correct. No other option. Ventilated, you were sedated and restrained, and that was that was the, that was the whole situation. And so, what was your first impression when you came into an awake and walking ICU? Well, I was forewarned when I came to the awake and walking ICU <laughs> that they don't sedate their patients, and you know, I, I thought then, well, what's so bad about that? I did not. I, I kind of grew a lot. Hopefully, over the years of nursing and went through a lot of changes, especially during the years of evidence-based practice nursing that went away from, you know, you still had your textbook nursing, but through trials and things like that, they found that certain things were a lot better if you didn't do things or if you did them a different way, which after years of nursing, you know, trying to tell a, an older nurse or have, you need to change. That's mm-hmm. a little bit hard. Well, you know, I, I did some research into what they were talking about and, I, and read a lot. And I thought, okay, well, I'll give it a try here and, and see exactly if this is supposed to be the best way. Let's see what happens. And I found that, yeah, you could deviate from certain things because things basically they're not written in stone like sedation why sedate somebody if you absolutely really don't have to? And so when I came to the ICU, the walking awake ICU, part of me, part of it surprised me and some of it didn't. I thought it was a a great concept simply because I've seen a lot of patients that have been sedated for days or a week um, become very deconditioned, not only pulmonary wise, but overall physical wise, you know, they, they muscle strength and deconditioned to their uh, extremities. And they were crazy in the head, if you want to say, because they were delirious. Mm -hmm. And with being off sedation, you actually still can interact with them other than the fact that they can't talk back. They can write and I, I, I saw they did so much better, so much better. And in what yeah. ways did they do better? They did better. They came off the ventilator quicker. Emotionally, I think they were better. Physically, they were a lot better because, you know, even setting up on the side of the bed and, and having them brush their own hair or, you know, performing their own mouth care, even mm-hmm. though, that, you know, um, not every patient, in my opinion, needs to be restrained. They, they were able to wash their face, do their own mouth care, suction their mouth. They, ha- they had some control over their situation. They weren't helpless, uh, in my opinion. They participated in their care. They um, were alert. They were oriented. You interacted. Uh, they knew the day-to-day happenings. And uh, mentally-wise, I think, I think it, it, they did 100% better. Yeah, that is so interesting. And I, I love that you mentioned even all those self-cares. And I noticed working with you that you spend a lot of time in your patients' rooms, just that one-on-one bedside. And so what does that do for your personal fulfillment or your connections with patients when they weren't sedated? Well, I, you know, I, looking back over the years, you know, when somebody was sedated on the ventilator and restrained, you know, hopefully the nurses were you had a nurse that, you know, did the every two hour turning mouth care, repositioning type uh, nursing functions. That is a standard practice. But a lot of times you didn't. You, there was nurses that did not participate in, fully in patient care. 
and delivering you know a full 100% good package to them and, and giving them what they needed. And what I mean by what they needed is is range of motion, positioning properly, releasing restraints and, and, and you know, moving their arms and flexion and extension. You know, a lot of that, I don't, I don't think sometimes people realize how quickly you can, your muscles can atrophy and lose muscle strength. Um, even simply head positioning can cause some uh, issues, especially if you have shortening of the muscles in the neck and the tendon, you know, you could have a, a head jacked to the one side and, you know, you're not able to raise your arms because you've had shortening of the muscles in your, in your shoulders and everything. Um, mm. It makes it hard to even, you know, raise your arm and put a shirt on. And I don't think a lot of nurses are being taught that. It's basically a lot of in and out, do what you need to do and get out of the room. And then you find the nurses that do like to spend a lot of time. I like to spend a lot of time with my patients because I think it's what they deserve and it's what I'm paid for. I want the best outcome for them possible. So that's why, you know, I always felt that, you know, that's why I became a nurse. You know, if it takes going the extra mile to do it, I will do it. And if it means, you know, not getting a lunch because the patient's in need, that's the way it goes. And I hadn't even thought, this is so silly, but, you know, I hear physical therapists talk about helping prevent contractures and things like that, but I just don't see it that often because our patients don't really get them I and mean, they're moving themselves. They don't lose the capacity to put their shirts on or to um, put their hands over their heads or things like that. And like you said, a lot of them don't have to be restrained. So those are just things that I think we, we're more programmed to have ambulate TID be the standard rather than turn Q2. Right. And, and that works very well when somebody is, you know, if, if the condition uh, allows someone to be up and ambulating, up in the chair, sitting on the side of the bed, you know, obviously supervised. It's, it's so much better to do that than to have somebody in the bed sedated and turning them every two hours. Pressure ulcers in the wake and walking ICU? No, I didn't. No. Uh, that's also a big thing is when someone's able to move and shift their hips or turn over themselves or um, you assist them in turning over, but they're awake. They, if they're awake and they realize like we normally do when we're asleep in our own beds, when, we, when pressure or something stimulates us to turn over, to change our position, when they're awake, they're cognizant of needing to turn over and they can turn their call light on and say, I want to turn over. And that works so much better in prevention of um, pressure ulcers, which is, you know, a huge, a huge uh, financial burden and a, a, a huge life altering issue with, with a patient that winds up with a stage two or three pressure ulcer. Yeah. Such a good point. So I forget that, that that is such a problem in, in this population because when you get different treatment, you get different outcomes, even down to pressure ulcers and skin breakdown. And you worked as a night nurse. I mean, that, that's your groove. And so one of the big focuses on delirium prevention is sleep. And so what benefits did you see to sleep when you were walking people before they went down to bed? Well, it, it kind of kept their, kept somewhat of a normal circadian rhythm. 
if that if that's the word how you say it um it you know they were up through the day activity kept awake then we come into the evening mode and they do some activity where they walk up in the chair get their teeth brushed mouth cleaned out and then most of the time they were tired and they just wanted to go to sleep and hopefully you could keep them up to at least 10 o'clock, which would always work better. Mm-hmm. And they would get sometimes, you know, several hours of uninterrupted sleep, which I think plays a huge role in delirium pre- prevention, as well as uh, instituting a um, sleep hygiene protocol. So you saw people get real sleep. That's one of the concerns is that well, there's a lot of confusion as far as people believe that sedation is sleep. So that's a problem to begin with. And right. then there's a concern and it's a valid concern that people will be so uncomfortable that they won't be able to sleep on the ventilator without sedation. So you saw patients sleep and getting real sleep. I don't think, yes, I did. I don't think sleeping on the ventilator with, with a breathing tube to some people is no different than sleeping with a BiPAP on or a CPAP. Mm -hmm. I think they're just as they, they can, if they're able to tolerate it psychologically, which most of the time I've seen that happen. Psychologically, they are able to tolerate it a lot better than uh, sometimes even just being on BiPAP with a face mask on. But they do. They, they go to sleep, and I've asked them before, you know, do you feel you are rested? And I've had many tell me yes versus someone being chemically sedated and then you waking them up. I don't recall that anyone's ever said that they felt like they've slept the best they ever had. No, survivors say that they, it was very unrestful and not peaceful at all. Well, I, it's scary to think of going days to weeks without any restorative sleep. Anyone would lose their minds. Uh, yeah. And so before coming to the Wake and Walking ICU, you probably hadn't really walked people on ventilators. Then here you are as a night shift nurse walking people on ventilators without physical therapy because we don't have physical therapy at night. What was that like for you? It was just, you know, honestly, it was just um, rearranging your time to incorporate that into your evening plan. I have no problem, and, and I feel that I've always been very proactive with, with things that would benefit my patient. And if, if they're able to get up and you have the capacity or the means to uh, ambulate them, I'm all for it. I was actually quite excited about it. I felt like I, it, it, was a, it was a major turning point in a learning curve for me that, wow, look what we are doing here. And I've even, you know, told friends that are nurses back in my home state, we don't sedate. We walk, they're up, and they're, they're totally surprised. I said, we have less incidence of delirium patients come off the ventilator sooner and it's totally I think a hundred percent better I think people try to imagine they try to imagine their deconditioned patients jumping out of bed and I think it's hard to imagine never letting people get deconditioned and how much safer it is and that they are able to throw their legs over the side of the bed, stand up. Some people walk out of the ICU stronger than they rolled in. Um, So we think, I mean, there are precautions you have to take, but did you feel unsafe walking patients? Did you feel like they were going to collapse on you? Or was anyone army crawling blue on the floor? No, you know, it's, you know, part of a good nursing assessment is, is assessing 
you know, the, the capabilities or their ability, are they ready for this? Can they do this? If they weren't, if I felt that they weren't ready mm-hmm. to do, let's say a complete walk around the unit, let's, let's, let's move up to sitting on the side of the bed for a minute. Let's stand, let's walk to the door and let's walk back. Yep. Um, and then, you know, it's like deconditioning happens because we allow it to happen. Ooh. We allow it to happen in people that come in the faci- in, into a hospital that is ill, becomes critically ill, and or ill enough that they require assistance with breathing. But physiological-wise or body mechanics-wise, they're just they're still strong, but we allow that become weak, even within a day or two of laying in a bed. And I think nursing in general needs to come up with a new idea on evaluating these people and beginning early ambulation as soon as possible. Yeah, and it's a, again, the multidisciplinary approach. I think sometimes physical therapy isn't even ordered until days after admission because People are newly intubated. They have high ventilator settings, or we're just—it's just not on the radar of, on admission. But you were probably getting people that had just been admitted that afternoon, and you're walking them that night, right? They're newly intubated, and you're right. up walking and them. Just yes. yes, and if they're capable of doing that, you don't time to a bed and sedate them <laughs> to make your night easier. That's not <laughs> what we're there for. Wow. At least that's not what I was there for. That is powerful. I mean, what a disservice to patients to take away their capacity to walk. They come in with their critical illness, but why does the rest of the body have to decline because they have pancreatitis, sepsis, pneumonia, all these other things that had nothing to do with total body strength, though it all plays a role. But if we can do our part to combat the effects of those and keep them functional, why wouldn't we do that? Why would we take away their capacity to walk? Paula, that's so powerful. And so you had all these experiences there, and then you went to a different ICU. And so what was that like hitting a whole new culture again? Well, it was was basically like a a bounce back, (laughs) bounce back into an era of, no, we sedate, and and when they're on the ventilator, we we start sedation. Also, I tried to have the, the, like, the approach why are we sedating them? Let's see what they do. Mm-hmm. Propofol is such a, a short-acting medication, and if you're using that to, to sedate somebody, to intubate them, let's let them wake up and see how they're responding to you. And I have had a lot, once again, a lot of people, they, they wake up and they're waking up slowly, and you, you're talking to them, you're telling them, you know, relax, and just nice breathing easy. You're doing great. And I've had a lot just wake up and be like, look at you. And I said, okay, you got your breathing too. And why honestly uh, that facilities aren't promoting more slow awakenings like that, just let mm-hmm. them wake up. And if they're tolerating it and, and everything is good, their physiological numbers are in place or not having any problem. Why not let them ride like that? You know, why put sedation on someone that doesn't need it? Our, our other former colleague, Jim, he had said and then post something like, I'm waking my patients up and the only anxious people are my coworkers that don't get it. He's exactly right. 
Is that what you found or what, how did the team receive your approach when you were waking up their patients? Well, I remember one morning I had worked and or one night and morning was coming, new shift was coming in and the patient that I had was ventilated, wide awake, suctioning her mouth, watching the news, had her call light, you know, motioning for me and writing things. And we were communicating and she, you know, her pressures were good. Her heart rate was great. Her um, respiratory effort was much easier. I mean, she was, you know, the ventilator was helping her and she psychologically was, I should say, dancing with the whole thing. Yeah. And, um, right. And the looks on the oncoming shift's face was, oh my gosh. I was like, pay no attention, <laughs> walk on, you know, she's fine. Everything's good. It was, it was shocking to them. And it was, it was a, I should say, thank goodness. The oncoming nurse that received my patient was very open to leaving her as is. Good. And um, as a matter of fact, it was, I believe it was Jim, his wife. Oh. And she was very open to that and a little apprehensive, but I'm glad she took my advice and, and she did. And I think later on that afternoon, the lady was extubated and was doing fine. So she gets a breathing tube out and she still, I mean, it's just like you're going to the physician, to a, a dentist and having a, 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 a feeling. So, you know, we, ex- we took the breathing tube out and exchanged it for a nasal cannula. Was she, was she confused? No. Was she able to get up in the chair? Yes. And was she anxious? No. And it's, it's those things that, that I think some of the, some of the general, I, I don't know if it's generational with nursing or it's just the climate that people work in that they're taught one after the other, this is how we do it. And they don't think, well, let's try deviating a little bit and let's see what we get. And I know the facility, they still sedate. Nursing is not as interactive with the patients as what, you know, perhaps I would be. Lack of turning, lack of physical mobility. Then, like you said, on the weekends when physical therapy is not there, or, you know, sometimes physical therapy can only be there once a day, PT or OT. So, does that mean we neglect our patient as far as, you know, range of motion or setting them on the side of the bed or say, hey, let's get up in the chair for an hour? No, I think that's part of the standard of care that's evolving that nurses need to uh, adapt to, change their attitude towards and be proactive. Yeah, a couple episodes ago, we had Chris Permay. She's a physical therapist that teaches ICU rehab and she kind of has this catchphrase that mobility is everyone's job. Correct. And nurses already have so much going on, but other nurses that I've interviewed have said, it's part of my assessment. It's just part of my treatment. It's just part of our flow. They, they make it kind of this natural process. It doesn't feel like it's a whole new chore. It does require effort to get a patient up, but it's a lot easier if you do it from day one than if you do it five days later, once they're weak you really can do it with one other person, sometimes by yourself, when they can actually participate. So you don't take away their capacity to do it. And then the patient themselves can do it for themselves or they can help you help them. But it's 
it's so much of the climate, like you said, of the environment that you work in, the mentality and the culture of where we're raised, where we've worked before, what we've experienced. Did you find people be excited about learning something new or your approach? Not exactly. <laughs> I, I think they, I think they took into consideration what was being said, but as far as actually um, being self-motivated to perform activities, it was easier to keep someone sedated and restrained on a ventilator than it was to make that extra effort, meaning it was a, I shouldn't say it was a babysitting method, but it was a, it was um, a way if my patient's sedated, ventilated and restrained, then I'm going to have an easy night. Mm -hmm. But you know, what's an easy night An easy night to me is if I take care of both of my patients and get my charting done without sedating them or restraining them. And an easy night for you is not necessarily an easy night for the patient. But if we, oh, but we have this misconception about what is going on during that, with that patient, they look like they're asleep. So it makes us feel like we've tucked them in. The sheets are nice and tidy. All the lines are in place and um, we don't have to mess with them. But is that really comfortable for the patient? Is that a good night for the patient? They're not actually sleeping. They're having terrorist hallucinations, but we don't see that. No, we don't. And, you know, I think with some of your, one of your other podcasts I'd listened to, you know, the, the lady was talking about, you know, the, you know, thought people were trying to kill them and, and they were being held against their will. And, you know, your mind's a powerful, a powerful organ and you, you get somebody, you know, you, you alter their mental, mental thinking with drugs and we don't understand or we don't, we don't know. And that's what's so good about what you're doing to bring about awareness of, in, in these people that are recovering, what is going on in their head? Mm-hmm. You know, are we psychologically torturing them by trying to physiologically get them better? And I think psychological torturing and physical healing, they don't go together. Right. Um, you gotta, you, you've got to be willing to take that time. And one thing that I found myself falling into very easily which surprised me was performing guided imagery with, with patients and uh, you know, they're scared. They're in, they, they don't know who you are. Should they trust you? You were the nurse that was there last night and, you know, strapped them to the bed, but actually taking the time to mentally relax them and to get them in a zone that they can relax and feel comfortable. I think is just as important and, and I, could, I could not imagine what someone who was possibly alert enough to hear the going-ons and the sounds and the dings and the, and the other patients yelling and staff laughing and um, that type of thing. What are they thinking? When they don't know where they are, what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. I had a, lady, had a lady tell me one time, this was many, many years ago, back when we used yellow isolation gowns, that when we went into her room, she thought we were big yellow birds coming into her room. And that's what she told me. I was like, oh, my gosh. And uh, Makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, w- what, we, what we perceive to be normal is not normal. 
Right. And I, I've heard from nurses around the country that they sedate because it's more comfortable for the patient. It's more humane. It prevents PTSD. They say things like, I'd rather be asleep on the ventilator than awake and experiencing the ICU. And so I think, yes, it's much easier to sedate and it makes for a much easier shift than having to actually talk to patients or move them. Yet I think I deeply believe that nurses are so good. And a lot of the cultural barriers come from a lack of awareness. They don't understand what it's like down the road to have the PTSD, the cognitive deficits, the weakness. They just don't have the big picture. But as we continue to talk about this and just show that it is possible and completely feasible to mitigate a lot of this harm while patients are on ventilators, those good nurses, which are the majority, if not all, are going to catch on to it and totally change the culture. But I think it starts with awareness first. And then our own convenience seems insignificant compared to the actual success of the patient. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's there are nurses that are nurses and are caring and will go the extra mile. And I think there's nurses that are mechanical. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you do what is on the 8 p.m. checkoff list and you do nothing more. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a culture and it's a culture that needs to be changed. And, you know, to change that culture in a, in a, let's say perhaps a unit that has never done such behavior activities, like, you know, it takes people that are, are, are willing to, physicians especially, to allow you to experiment. And ex- what I mean by that is, you show you're teaching, you're showing them let's we're lightening the sedation by this, 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 this. And you get the patient nice and awake and you know you move forward with activity and mobility, that type of thing, communication, reorientation, and you and you, you teach these nurses. Yeah, it truly is a skill set. I I think we just kind of get used to doing these things, but we forget how moving patients is not an innate skill set for ICU nurses, especially when you first come in, right? And you're used to just having patients be um, immobilized and comatose in bed. It's a whole new skill set to figure out how to move the ET tube around, move the ventilator around, just have the comfort and the instinct to do that. And then it's a new skill set to wake someone out of sedation who's delirious and agitated and have a confidence that you can work them through that, that that sedation will wear off, the delirium will clear, and that they will be calm. It takes a whole nother set of experience, perspective, and patience and skills to do that. And so I think you're right. It takes more than just one nurse and one unit at the bedside. It's going to take some support, people that have done it before or really believe in it and that can stay calm and see through the fog and look at the big picture of the patient's outcomes. Yeah, you're right. It, it does. Um, it, it, you know, I know in, in the in the era or the way things are kind of now with with not only with multiple facilities is lack of support staff. And mm-hmm. I think that's where places need to go back and really evaluate how important support staff are in assisting the nurse to help the patient accomplish a goal that ultimately will reduce hospital time, delirium, hospital, you know, financially it's going to reduce 
the cost of a prolonged hospitalization with multiple complications. And we're, we're, we're starting to touch on some episodes that are down or that are coming as far as how to change the culture, the financial repercussions of these practices. There are just so many rabbit holes that we're going to dive into as this podcast unfolds, but you are so right about everything. And I, it, for me, it's exciting to hear about good nurses like you that had so much experience and brought such a wealth of knowledge, but also you were still open to learning and changing. And then you were willing to bring that elsewhere. And so that's exciting to me because I know that our field, whether they're doing it or not, people are going to be willing to do it. I think nurses just need the opportunity to know and the support to do. And then things are going to roll. Agree. And, you know, a, a lot of the newer nurses that now are coming directly into the ICU, uh, they're learning habits from the ones that's been there longer mm-hmm. or perhaps just within even a year. And we need to be very aware of what we're teaching the, our new people, our new nurses, and we need to teach them how to do certain things. And, and the why. How, right. And how to interact with your patient appropriately. How to get them? How to get them over a hump? And I've told many a patients that were like awake and maybe having some anxiety. If you will follow me and bear with me, I will get you through this. Just listen to what I'm asking you and what I'm telling. Okay, mm-hmm. I've got a lot of people through that, and that's you know that's one thing with like learning to guide someone through a bad situation. Um, and I think a lot of new nurses even don't know how to do that. They don't know how to do it even with patients off the ventilator. Uh, like in a death situation, they don't know how to guide a family member, you know, on this journey. And teaching people how to guide people is hard for some and they don't do it. Yeah, that would probably be a good podcast episode too. Like how to truly connect and walk patients through anxiety, fear, death, all those phases. Oh, Paul, you're giving me so many good ideas. Thank you so much for all your good work and being willing to share um, all of this with us. I, I'm excited for everything that's to come in your future and the future of our community. Thank you so, so much. You're very welcome. Very welcome. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.